five foot tall, 18 years old. Michelle Norris is a medic in the British Army. And um, her friends called her Chuck because she's so small. They thought it was kind of funny that they call her Chuck Norris, um, as in the, uh, the, uh, the karate guy. And so um, she's 18 in 2006 and was deployed with the British Army um, to Iraq. She had just arrived, just right after her training, and was in a, um, a warrior patrol vehicle with uh, British soldiers um, looking for insurgents um, when the driver of the vehicle yells back to her that the sergeant, Sergeant Ian Page, was in the turret above the, the, the vehicle and he'd been shot. And so she jumped from the back of the vehicle and climbed up the outside ladder kind of an armored vehicle with a turret in the top and a gunner up there. So she's climbing up, and she says as she's climbing, she sound, it sounded like somebody was throwing rocks at the, at the vehicle, and she didn't really under, think through what was going on. But by the time she hit the top of the ladder, she said she realized it wasn't rocks that were being thrown at the vehicle, but someone was shooting. There was a sniper who had hit the sergeant in the turret, and now the sniper had turned his aim on her. But she continued up the ladder. And she climbed across the top of the vehicle and found that Sergeant Page had been shot through the mouth. And she um, grabbed hold of him and, and started to pull him up. And as she did, a bullet went right past her head. And then another one went through her backpack as she was trying to pull him up. But still she wasn't hit, so she kept pulling. This sergeant who weighed twice uh, her body weight, she pulled him over and drug him to the back of the, the vehicle. And there were two other soldiers had run up, and they, they pulled him down from the top. And then she climbed down and administered first aid inside the vehicle and saved his life. And for this, she was nominated as the first woman ever in the British Army to receive what's called the, the Military Cross, uh, the rough equivalent of, of, of Great Britain's um, uh, Congressional Medal of Honor is what we would give it. So she's the first woman ever nominated. And then in December of that same year, she was the first woman ever to receive the Military Cross the highest honor that, her, that she could have received. Can you imagine when Michelle returns home to her hometown in England? Her mom says that all of England is so proud of her. But in her hometown, can you imagine the welcome that she's going to get? I don't think she's going to pay for a pint for a long time, do you? I mean, she's going to, probably not a breakfast, lunch, or dinner either. There's going to be people lining up to take good care of her. And you know why too, right? She's a real hero, a bona fide hero who saved someone's life, put herself in harm's way, risked bodily injury in order to save someone else. In the Bible, we've been reading through Genesis, and we met this guy, Jacob. If Michelle Norris is the hero, Jacob is the anti-hero. If she's uh, out trying to save someone else, putting her own life at risk, Jacob is actually doing the opposite. He's willing to put everyone else's life in harm's way in order to save himself. In fact, one of the last things we heard from Jacob is that his brother Esau was so angry with him that he said, here's the last words Jacob hears from his, the next time I see my brother, I'm going to kill him. He is so, so angry with him. And Jacob does what you would do, probably, if your big brother was going to kill you. He runs away from home. He flees, and he goes and he lives with his uncle. And he's so far away that, that things seem to settle down. And he kind of gets into a normal routine of life. He gets married. He has children. He begins to acquire um, stuff. But um, remember, his brother is still angry. And, 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 you know, Jacob is not the victim of his brother's, um, you know, anger control issues. 
Jacob has brought everything on himself. He stole his brother's inheritance by tricking him, at least being uh, you know, an opportunist, if nothing else. He stole his brother's blessing by tricking his father. And now here he is living up uh, hundreds of miles away from home. And uh, he starts doing the same thing to his father-in-law. He works this kind of genetic engineering scheme where he, he makes this deal with his father-in-law. Look, uh, well, let me just have the, the, the bad sheep and you keep the good ones. But then all of a sudden all these bad sheep start appearing. And, and all of a sudden he takes from his father-in-law a huge chunk of wealth. Guess what? His father-in-law gets angry with him too and he wants to kill him. So Jacob does what he has to do. He's on the run again. This time the only, only place to go is home. I imagine that he thinks, you know, I'll slip into the old neighborhood, you know, maybe under the cover of darkness. Nobody will notice. It'll be, it'll be fine, you know. You know people like that? People who never say they're sorry, but just kind of like show up one day and like everything is normal and back to, Aren't they precious? Yeah. And this is Jacob. He, he's, he's coming back home trying not to let anybody know. But guess what? Word gets out. And Jacob has sent a message. Your brother Esau is coming to visit you. Remember your brother Esau, the one who said the last thing he said was, I'm going to kill you? He's on his way to visit you. And notice this little caveat. And he's bringing 400 men with him. An army. Esau is going to show up with an army. You know what Jacob is thinking, don't you? Oh my goodness. I'm done for. Here he is, running for his life. Caught between his uncle in the north, his brother to the south. He makes a camp at the Jabbok River. And uh, he spends the night there. Jacob does what Jacob always does. He thinks about how in the world is he going to save his own skin. Begins to plot and think through these things. And, and he comes up with this idea. I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll divide my house into two camps. I'll put, I'll put on the south side of the river where my brother's on the way up. I'll put all my servants and my animals. And, and he's become rich by now. There's lots of stuff. And, and he puts them all on the south side. And, and then he and his wives and his children, they go on the north side. And here's what I think. I think he says to himself, if Esau's coming up from the south and attacks, I'll be able to see it. And when it happens, I can just sneak away under the, you know, uh, the cover of uh, all the, the commotion going on. The, they'll be down there killing everybody else and, and we'll all get away free. But in the middle of the night, something happens. He wakes up and he's terrified. And he does, well, not what heroes do. He, he does what, what the anti-hero does. He takes his wives and his children and he moves them across the river. He puts them down there as human shields while he himself sneaks back to the other side. Look, look if you would, at, in your bulletin um, at, the, at the lesson, right there at the very beginning. The very beginning of the Old Testament lesson, the same night, verse 22, the very beginning, the same night he arose, that is Jacob, and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Now look at this next line. And Jacob was left alone. How many people are there when you're alone? It's a trick question. None, right? You're there by yourself. He's there alone, period. You see that? He's there alone, period. But look at the very next sentence. And a man wrestled with him. Where'd this man come from? A man wrestled with him until daybreak. I mean, 
He's there alone. You can't be alone and there be somebody else there with you, right? Where does this man come from? And you say, oh, I've read the whole story. I saw the picture on the front of the bulletin. You know, I think it's God or it's an angel or something like that. That's who's there with him. Well, fine, smarty pants, steal my thunder. Anyway, but we don't say that, do we? In the text, it doesn't say that God wrestles with him. It doesn't say that an angel wrestles with him. What does it say? And a man wrestled with him. But it's a bit convoluted. The man is strong. Jacob can't get free. He's, he's trying to hold on, but he can't get free. But neither can the man. Neither one is stronger than the other. They both get in this, this tussle, this struggle, this fight. The only thing the man can do is he dislocates Jacob's hip. Then it gets really weird. Jacob looks at the man and says this. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. If somebody broke into your house in the middle of the night and they're wrestling with you on the ground, I don't think you're going to be asking for a blessing, are you? I'm not going to be asking for a blessing. Unless the blessing is called Smith and Wesson. I don't know. I'm not going to be asking for a blessing at all, right? Are you? If somebody's wrestling with you on the ground in the middle of the night, you're not... But Jacob does. He knows that there's something more to this than just your regular run-of-the-mill cat burglar. Something is special about this man. The man says to Jacob, here's where your blessing starts. No longer shall you be called Jacob... Which you know means heel grabber, trickster, cheat, swindler. But instead you have a new name. Israel. Yisrael. One who struggles with God and with humans and wins. One who takes God to the mat and is victorious. And it leaves us scratching our heads saying, But can it be that Jacob is really stronger than God? Can it be that Jacob could really take God to the mat and win this fight? You know, I think sometimes we have a hard time telling the difference between a blessing and a curse. We think that a blessing is all about no gentle breeze and lack of resistance. It's about an easy summer day. There's no trouble in the world. That's blessing. Curse is all struggle and fighting. and Blessing is like... It's like when you go to Baskin-Robbins and the only thing you have to worry about is which flavor to pick. You know, that's blessing, right? But not so in this text. The blessing is actually found in the struggle, not away from it. In fact, sometimes the blessing is the struggle. Sometimes the blessing is that God makes us face our fears. He makes us face our demons. What's the one thing when Jacob goes away from this fight? He's won the fight. What's the one thing he can't do? He's limping. He can't run. Read on in the chapter. Guess what Jacob has to do next? He has to go meet up with his brother. He has to go to him face to face. And he bows down to the ground seven times, just hoping his brother's not going to chop his back of his neck one time. Struggling with God means that he has to face his fears. He has to face the thing that he's most afraid of. Struggling with God is the recognition that even though we struggle, we're not alone. We're never alone. I think there's something else about this passage. The fact that you can't really tell when it's a man and when it's God in the struggle tells us something else about the struggles of life, right? That sometimes we think that our struggles with people are just that. These are, if they weren't so evil and bad, you know, if they weren't so ornery and nasty, then everything would be great. But no. 
Sometimes God wants us to work out those struggles with human beings. Sometimes He puts us in those places to do just that. And maybe the fact that we can't extricate ourselves from the human struggle without extricating ourselves from the struggle with God. Uh, there's a story told of this medical student um, who, uh, who believed that he could, in a very simple and straightforward way, cure people with uh, mental illnesses. All he needed to do was to argue with them rationally. If all he could do was just realign their thinking, then he would make everything right. And so one time he's at this hospital and um, there was this, med- this uh, mental patient who believed that, that he was dead. And so this intern sat down beside the, uh, the, the mental patient and he says, um, he says, I just want to talk to you about this and, and help you to, to realize that you're not really dead. And the, and the guy says, but I am, I'm dead, you just don't understand. And he says, no, no, really, think about this. He says, do dead people bleed? The middle patient thought for a while, and he says, no, dead people do not bleed. So the intern says, let me see your hand. And he took his hand and he pricked it with a needle, and blood began to appear. He says, what do you see there? The middle patient said, I see blood. He said, so, what do you think now? The middle patient said, I guess dead people do bleed, don't they? <laughs> Sometimes we have this delusion that the people of God never struggle. But they do struggle. Sometimes we struggle with others and sometimes we struggle with God. And we have to go to the mat. But the passage tells us that if we want to win this fight, the one thing that we cannot do is let go. We have to stay in the struggle. At least stay in the struggle until God blesses us. At least stay in the struggle that long. Amen.